Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-I-S-P-A-R-K-S.com. And when you enter your email, you'll also be added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, my Poly Over 50 meetup group. So tonight, I'm very excited to get to know Angela Skirtu. She is a licensed marriage therapist based in Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist. She's also the author of two books, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity, and Premarital Counseling, a Guide for Clinicians. She's also a public speaker and runs a podcast called AboutSexPodcast.com. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you here. It's nice we were talking before we began about going outside the Bay Area and meeting people from different parts of the country and the world. So it's nice for you to bring your Midwestern heart and soul to us today. <laughs> well, I'm glad to bring it. Well, yeah, we were saying, you know, there's very different value systems in terms of how what people bring from the different countries. So hopefully I can mm-hmm. bring a new voice. <laughs> right. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, so why don't we start with talking about your background and what got you into the field of sex therapy? I'm curious, how does one become a sex therapist? <laughs> Not not education-wise, but just your growth and how did you end up there? <laughs> sure, of course. Well, um, it's a it's a long story. Uh, basically, I have a bunch of preachers uh, as men in my family, <laughs> like every man wow. is a preacher, very conservative, and um, very conservative household in general. And I remember kind of going up. You know, like I thought that was, um, you know, that's what you feel is normal. And but like as I grew up in kind of my conservative background, like I would notice just different sexual problems occurring. Now, now that I'm, you know, like an adult, I see sexual problems occurring everywhere, to be honest. So it doesn't matter whether it's a religious person or not. But like I just, I was seeing people like, for example, I had these girlfriends and they were all waiting to have sex until marriage. They were staying virgins. And they would get young very early as a result. And I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a good idea, but, you know, I'm just kind of observing people. But what's funny is, like, a year later, each friend would kind of come back to me and say, you know, I'm not really enjoying sex very much. I'm kind of just doing it for him. And I was like, huh, Uh there's something wrong with that, right? Like, it just kept happening. And so, you know, themes of women not being able to own their own sexuality, themes of people not being able to talk comfortably about sex, themes of shame like those were all things I grew up with as a child in a very conservative religious background but like I said they're all over they're not just in religion 
Um, I think as a society, that's how we treat sex to some degree. So it makes it very difficult for people to own their sexuality. And then um, along the way, there were these shows that were on like, um, oh, those uh, Sue Johansson where she'd play with sex toys in the middle of the night. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the show, but it was hilarious. And I said to myself, oh, you didn't know this old lady who's a nurse and she would like give them briquettes for, you know, how hot they were. She would try them, not on the show, but like she would try them and and review them. And I remember thinking to myself, I could totally do that. (laughs) And so, you know, a few, a few uh, educational pieces later, and, you know, I definitely ended up being a sex therapist and I love it. It's a great job. Um, You cut out a little bit uh, on the last sentence you said, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I said, I love it. It is a great job. It's a great job. Okay. <laughs> Do you get yeah, to sorry. play sex toys now? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually have a briefcase. This is a silly, but I have a 70s style briefcase that sits in a corner in my office. And inside this briefcase is sex toys. They're virgins, I promise. Mm-hmm. They're, like, they're not used. <laughs> they're just for display. But like I have uh, a, I have a vagina puppet in there. I have my toys and I have lubes and things so I can teach people how to use them. And what's funny is everybody like clocks this, um, this briefcase and they're like, what's, what's in the briefcase? And when they finally get to see it, everybody just laughs so hard because they're like, you know, usually in a briefcase like this, you might expect money or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Funny. And That's it's sex cute. toys. <laughs> it's a great conversation starter. That old briefcase. huh? <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. Well, after I was doing a talk one day, I was walking past, um, like I did it at this really nice restaurant. I was walking past these gentlemen and this guy says to me, he's like, Hey, what's in the briefcase? And some part of me really (laughs) wanted to scream out dildos, but I didn't, I didn't. I stayed professional and I walked on. (laughs) That's great. So you, um, you grew up in a conservative family. So I'm wondering if you attract conservative women clients who are trying to break out of that, that conditioning. I actually attract all kinds of people. Well, I'm just wondering, like, how do you work with women who kind of learn to do their wifely duty and how do you help them to go from that? Like sex is something that you're supposed to give your husband because their religion told them that to actually owning their sexuality. How do you get them there? Well, so there's a lot of things that I do to help people. Um, So first of all, I teach them that it's okay to be a little bit selfish or actually for my religious term, selfish can um, like, it's kind of against their value system. And so for them, Mm -hmm. I use the term self-love. But basically, uh, yeah, you know, a little change in the phrase and then everybody's down. (laughs) Right. Some people are. But yeah, so like basically I, I, I tell everybody you have to get something out of sex for yourself. You can't do what we call that is sacrificial sex. It's where you're kind of giving your body as a sacrifice. And the bad thing mm-hmm. is it's almost like a form of self-rape, you know, like they're consenting mm-hmm. it's like verbally, but not in their body and not in their mind. And, and it's very harmful and it causes their desire to tank. And I explain that too. Very, I'm very raw and honest with my words. And so, like, I explain, you know, like, in some ways, that's kind of you dying inside. And the longer you do that, the more your desire just is going to tank. And when they kind of see that, then the, the route out of it is to find something in sex for yourself alone. 
And that doesn't mean you can't be a generous lover. I, I think everybody who's a good lover has a balance of both selfishness and generosity. Like the, the, it's kind of a back and forth. But for women, I have to get them really exploring, what do you get out of this for you and you alone? And not just for sex, but like flirting. What do you get out of flirting? What do you get out of kissing? What do you get out of touching? Um, what do you like about sex? What did you used to like about sex if they were active before marriage? But if they weren't, then I might get them watching shows. Like I loved the old Sex in the City shows because like they were showing women who were powerful and, and smart and who are very sexual people. And I just don't feel like there are a lot of good role models like that, that you can have all of that encompassing and it not be some sort of slut shaming situation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That show did give women permission to have their own agency around their sexuality. Well, I think you're, that's a good point there, right? Is that we have to give them permission. People, it's so mm-hmm. weird, but like people, people struggle to kind of, give themselves permission to be, they, they feel guilty or they feel ashamed for who they are. And, and when they're given permission, especially for me as a woman, like telling them that this is good for you, I think a lot of my women, um, that's a valuable thing too. Because of course the men in their life are saying, you should be this way and every other woman is like this. And so it's, it's almost a shaming form of pressuring them. Whereas mm-hmm. when I'm doing it, you know, I'm not trying to have sex with these women, obviously. I'm just a therapist here, but I'm trying to encourage them that they could get something really positive and beneficial out of it. Um, Specifically if they use their entire body as a sexual organ, not just like, not just their genitals, basically. Like that's the other problem is Mm -hmm. they're having bad sex. A lot of them are having very terrible sex. And I always joke with my clients, like you have no idea what kind of sex is good out there and and you have a right to feel it and it's going to be wonderful, but you have to do the exploration to get there. Right, right, right. So since my specialty is non-monogamy, I was really interested in your specialty or one of your specialties of overcoming infidelity. And I think it's a common uh, problem out there that happens where uh, one of the people in a couple cheats and then they come back and say, well, I'm actually polyamorous. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, whether people can uh, transition from an infidelity situation to polyamorous? Is it extra hard? Um, what are some of the issues that come up around that situation? So I've seen it to some degree, and it is very hard because um, in a typical infidelity treatment scenario, if they're both trying to stay monogamous, what you try to get the, the partner who um, reached out to somebody else to do is stop the relationship with the other person, really refocus on their current partner and do everything they can to just rebuild trust and and grow together as a couple. Okay. But when there's this polyamory thing as part of it, this is a hard thing. So in our society, we have a certain vision of what relationships are supposed to look like and our whole culture really enforces it. Right. But so we grow up thinking monogamy is the way this is how you're supposed to be. And you're supposed to have, you know, like a husband, wife, two kids, uh, like a dog and a cat and, you know, live in the suburbs and you're going to be great. <laughs> and there's no room in that mm-hmm. definition for anybody in the LGBTQ community or anybody who is non-monogamous. And what will happen is people are going with the flow and then somewhere in the middle of their marriage, as they're starting to come into themselves and explore what's out there, they realize, well, what if I don't want to be monogamous? And what if I really am poly? And, and how do you even identify that? You know, it's, a, it's such an interesting topic, right? And so, yeah, maybe they'll cheat, but like one of the things that's problematic is that when you've cheated, you've 
betrayed kind of one of the hallmarks of polyamory, which is consent and openness and honesty. And so it's not that people can't do it, but we have to work on the betrayal first before we can really get to building trust in polyamory because like the, uh, what I'll do is I'll teach people the sexual ethics that um, Michael Vigorito and Doug Braun Harvey wrote in their book, um, Treating Men with Out-of-Control Sexual Behaviors. And basically, it's, it's just this ethics model of being honest, being consensual, mutual pleasure. Um, and it goes through all the different ethics so that you have this understanding of regardless of who you are or how you identify, these are the ethics that make your behaviors okay or not okay. And dishonesty is not okay. And it mm-hmm. will not be successful in a polyamorous relationship if you can't be completely transparent with the lovers that you have. And so mm-hmm. I have to basically work with them to first rebuild that trust, but I'm still very open to talking to couples about polyamory and what that means to them without, but there's the challenge is pressure actually that like sometimes because one partner is trying to keep the other partner because they're scared of losing them. I don't want them to feel pressured into polyamory simply because they're afraid they're going to lose their partner. And often I'll tell them, you know, I know a lot of polyamorous clients and many of them who are successful, what they do is they'll take breaks during times of heartache. And so I'll frame Mm -hmm. it like that, you know, like um, if you are poly, that's fine. We're going to learn and grow in that way. But even, even if you were polyamorous for 10 years, most of them will take breaks here and there to kind of focus on themselves or the relationship. So this is one of those times if you guys do end up being poly, that you guys need to take a break and like rebuild the trust between the two of you so that you could potentially be successful if that's the route you take. And then it's just a slow conversation with the other person about answering questions. What's this like? Am I enough or am I not enough? Why can't you just, you know, like there's a bunch of questions people have to ask and explore and it doesn't happen all the time. You know, that's, that's the other thing is I can't guarantee Like, it's hard for people who've been monogamous for years to really put their mind around what does it mean to be polyamorous? What is that? (laughs) Right. And so I could imagine that there would be, it would take time for the person that was cheated on to um, rebuild that trust and, and have to have lots of examples of them showing up honestly before they would start to feel like they could trust them again. That might take six months to a year or more sometimes, huh? It could. It could take a while. Honestly, regular infidelity treatment can take six months to a year or two years. I always give people a long timeline because betrayal is painful. I don't care how it's dished. And um, when, when you are betrayed, there's so many just feelings of hurt and remorse that people have to go through. But the interesting mm-hmm. thing is that a part of my treatment is using skills that I've learned from the non-monogamy community. Like um, Mm -hmm. things that I've learned about how they talk about jealousy are the same skills I treat, use to treat clients who are working through infidelity because polyamorous Mm -hmm. folk and open relationships, because they're not all poly, you can be swinger, you know, there's a whole Mm -hmm. world of just non-monogamy, right? But like one of the things that they do is they talk very openly and honestly about jealousy. They talk very openly Mm -hmm. and honestly, honestly about the fact that they find other people attractive Um, in monogamous couples they have this belief system sometimes that like I'm married to this one person, therefore I should never find anyone else attractive. And if I do, there's something wrong with me or something wrong with the relationship. And that's completely Mm -hmm. untrue. You're a human being with warm blood. And if somebody around you is hot, 
or shows you a tr- like interest and it's exciting. I don't care. And it doesn't have to be something wrong with your relationship for you to find other people attractive. And so mm-hmm. even getting my clients being really open and honest about the fact that, yeah, it is fun when I get a lady flirting with me at, at the restaurant. And yeah, it is exciting when I know somebody's attracted to me, but then being honest about then where they're going to set that boundary in monogamy. And so I actually have couples doing the same conversations regardless of how they're defined about jealousy, Mm -hmm. about setting boundaries, about trying new agreements, but really just getting so darn honest that like there's nothing left to hide really. And I think it's very valuable in relationships to do so. Right. And I'm glad you said that because I think there are a lot of tools that um, non-monogamous people are kind of forced to use, whereas monogamous people can kind of sweep stuff under the rug um, and I actually did a mm-hmm. workshop one time on what monogamous people can learn from polyamorous people. <laughs> so um, yep, that's me great. Too. <laughs> so, so are there polyamorous people in Missouri? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, of course. I'm just wondering. There's polyamorous people <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I'm totally joking, but I just wanted to ask you, um, did you uh, seek out um, polyamorous couples or did they just show up in your office? Like, did you expect you'd be helping couples open their relationships kinds of sexual health issues you know I'm a sex therapist Mm -hmm. and as I I did my training I learned about different kinds of people so in St. Louis there's about five or six sex therapists so it's not that I'm necessarily marketing in one direction or another I'm marketing overall sexual health but of course polyamorous people and open relationships are going to be drawn to me as a sex therapist because there's this understanding that I'm open-minded and willing to work with all kinds of people. Um, as I've sense. gone like and worked over time, I do uh, advertise a little bit with the Sex Positive St. Louis, which is a group where open people with open relationships can kind of meet up and get to know each other, and they actually do educational classes. So like that's really cool. Mm-hmm. We actually have a great um, education system here that is just for adults um, to to learn about all of these different topics as they they want to teach people sexual ethics too. Um, So I do put my name in some of those hats as well, but just as a clinician. Mm -hmm. Cool. So what are some of the common challenges that non-monogamous couples face? Well, you know, it's really interesting. So like I found that well, some of them struggle with jealousy. Quite a few of them would say to me, I don't have sexual jealousy, actually. I'm perfectly fine without. But what I have also found that some of the problems they do experience are um, things like, uh, well, so for example, maybe they are fighting about resources or maybe they're fighting about like, uh, you know, the kids. So for example, not everybody comes into my office because they want to deal with polyamorous relationships. Sometimes they're coming into my office because they're trying to figure out, Hey, I want you to be around during a family night and I don't feel like you are here when I need you to be. And so they'll have conversations about what do we need to do with the kids or what do we need to do to make sure we're still a priority? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's. Uh, we were talking about how the language changes so quickly, particularly in the coastal cultures. Um, so a lot of people are talking about non-hierarchical relationships now, so that there isn't a primary partner, that every partner is equally important. Um, do you work with mm-hmm. any people who have that type of structure? 
Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people, like I've talked to people of all kinds, and the people who do the uh, primary relationship would say, you know, this is, this is my main partner, and then everybody's kind of ancillary or secondary. But what I've mm-hmm. found more often happening is um, people trying to do kind of an equality-based system where it's like, no, each relationship has its own course and can be as strong or as not strong as it needs to be. We meet people where they're at. Um, I've mm-hmm. seen it work in either situation. It's just a matter of, um, you know, like what, what a person's personal style is. And, you know, we kind of call them a relationship anarchist. <laughs> Basically they're like, you don't get to define me. <laughs> so I get mm-hmm. to decide the rules for my relationship and I'm not sure if I want them to even be in this course. And you know, what's cool is the more people that I meet that are in open relationships, the more that I start to recognize that like people are kind of fluid within it too. Like, so sometimes people go in thinking they're in it for casual sex and then it turns out they want to fall in love. Sometimes think they're good. They go, they think they're going in for love and then they find, well, I actually could do casual sex too. And there's everywhere in between. And so one thing that's really beautiful is it's an opportunity to explore who are you, what's your relationship to sex and what's your relationship to love and sex. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also find that some people are more jealous about the love piece than the sexual piece. And, and I'm more the opposite. I think I'm in the minority where jealousy comes up more for me when, when it's just hot sex. Um, when my partner falls in love with someone new, I get really excited. Like, Oh, the family's getting bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when it's just like really hot like when it's really hot sex, then that triggers old wounds in me that I'm not sexy enough or whatever. So I'm opposite a lot of people, but I know I'm not alone. Have you found other people that are more like me where they, they have more sexual jealousy than love jealousy? Oh, I gotta say uh, people are all across the board, like in terms of their (laughs) jealousy. Uh, I mean, you know, really like, it's so interesting to me. So some people once love is involved, that's when they're scared. Some people want sex is really intense like that. That's when they're scared. Some people, it's mm-hmm. when I feel like you're taking some of our family resources, like I was saying earlier, like don't spend our money, mm-hmm. you know, like you go date, you mm-hmm. go and date people. Right. But like, we only have so much money, so don't spend it on somebody else. <laughs> um, right. Or so, time. Like, it's it's often a big or thing. Time. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I only have so much time for you. Make me a priority still. And, and so like, it's just interesting, but the jealousy can come in multiple ways. And one of the books I read kind of covered jealousy as a type of umbrella emotion for like covering mm-hmm. some deeper needs or deeper um, challenges. Right. And so anytime, you know, in, in the polyamorous community, when somebody's struggling with jealousy, um, I suggest they just look at it and notice and, and kind of like once the jealousy, the intensity of the jealousy passes, find a way to look back and wonder, you know, okay, where is this coming from? What do I really need right now? And then find ways to identify it and meet it either within themselves or with a partner. Cause this is a hard thing. Um, sometimes people have kind of this mindset that they have to get all their needs met in a partner. And the reality is a part of our lives, we have to learn to meet our own needs too. And that may mean if you feel unlovable, finding ways to feel lovable, um, doing things for mm-hmm. yourself personally, And um, what I've noticed about everyone in the open community is that um, basically it brings up any of their issues (laughs) because you're faced with new things and each partner brings out a new part of yourself or unlocks new things Mm. that you didn't know existed. And so that's always been really cool to me too, to watch as like a client kind of unlocks new secrets or old, old hurts or wounds. 
and they can really be healed in these relationships if, if they are handled in a very delicate way. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the things about um, monogamy versus non-monogamy is that um, people that have experience with non-monogamy start to learn that jealousy is just a tool that points points inward. You know, what what do I need to work on? What what wound is unhealed? Mm-hmm. Whereas monogamous people might react more and make it about the other person. Well, let's talk like about you that. Flirted, too, you hugged um, that person too long. You you know you stared at mm-hmm. that woman for more than five seconds or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. One of the one of the most important skills that I teach my clients and in both camps, monogamous or non-monogamous is learning that emotions can be separated from actions and that that's actually a really good thing. So, for example, love. I love love. I think love is a beautiful emotion. It's so exciting when people feel love towards each other because it's intoxicating and there's anxiety involved. But love is, an, love is a, an emotion that makes people feel like they need to act. Jealousy is an emotion that makes people feel like they need to act. But the more people spend in non-monogamy, the more they realize that actually you don't need to act. You need to sit with this emotion and you need to notice it. This is mindfulness, essentially. For any therapist listening, they're like, yeah, I totally get mindfulness. But basically it's being Mm -hmm. present minded. But it's also not acting. It's being present in your feelings, noticing them, taking note of what what effect it's having on you. And then, then thinking before you act. Because even when you're in love, it doesn't give you a right to act in harmful ways. It doesn't give you a right to betray people. Like you still have to take, take people's feelings into consideration and treat them with respect, which is why I, you know, obviously I'm not a proponent of infidelity because that's one thing that's not happening. It is an act of desire and passion sometimes or love. Honestly, that can go multiple ways too, to be fair, but like without the, it's, it's done without the real like careful handling of people's feelings and um, emotions whereas in poly it is like there is an understanding that it's very possible for you and for you to fall in love and what are we going to do as a couple when that happens what are we going to do when you get jealous not if it's not an if scenario it's <laughs> when because we will get jealous mm-hmm. we will fall in love we will sometimes like be so t- like drawn to somebody that it's like electric and exciting and it's hard to know what to do with those emotions um, and really the best thing is not act, but to take time to just notice, enjoy them when they're good, um, deal with them a little when they're bad, but then act mm-hmm. afterwards when you're in a little bit more of a clear headed mind. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes we have to take a pause if we're triggered and we can't separate the feelings from the mm-hmm. actions. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Too, we well, that's what that pause yeah. is. It's essentially, yeah, it's a, t- a, a moment to be mindful and present. Because, yeah, like, people can do really terrible things in love. That's the weird thing. So love is this beautiful, oh, so beautiful, intoxicating emotion. And it causes, it can cause a lot of chaos (laughs) if if it's not treated with respect, the respect that it deserves. (laughs) Right, right, right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio with your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach. And we're speaking with Angela Skirtu who's a marriage therapist based in Missouri, also a sex therapist. And she's the author of two books, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity and Premarital Counseling. And we're talking about how intense love can be, how it it can be 
the most beautiful thing in the world and also trigger our deepest wounds. There's something about relationships mm-hmm. that just, it's like pouring miracle grow on your worst shadow parts of yourself, <laughs> right? It's so easy when you're alone, but as, yep. soon as, you're, as soon as someone means something to you, why do you think that mm-hmm. is that when we, when someone matters to us, that's when those core wounds come up. What is that about? I think it's because as soon as you care about somebody, you're scared of losing them. Mm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's a weird feeling, but basically to care is to care too much. And it's scary when you care about somebody then you think you automatically think a little bit about the end. And the end is mm-hmm. scary because nothing is, nothing's permanent. Things are temporary. And to feel that much for somebody and to also have to face the reality that it may not last forever is scary. It's so frightening. And so I think it brings out any of those insecurities, especially if it's a really deep relationship or a deep connection. It, it will bring out any, any of those feelings of attachment issues of, you know, cause if like, say you've had abandonment stuff happen with your family, well then anytime you fall in love or get really connected, then you're always reminded of how you were abandoned as a child by the people who needed to love you the most. Or mm-hmm. if there were any trauma histories, sex, sex and trauma are very closely associated at times because if a trauma was a sexual assault, then you're, you're obviously going to experience some triggers in your sexual relationship um, in different ways. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that person. It just means that basically any issue, like you said, any issue will start to be triggered. And the one thing I do love about my uh, CNM clients with consensual non-monogamy is that they really, they own that and they understand that they're going to have those issues show up and they work really hard to put their needs out there, to respect each other, to talk and talk and talk again. <laughs> like they Definitely, it's funny when I talk to them, they'll all say, we, we always talk so much. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> so I think that's mm-hmm. a good thing. But it's funny because it can also be just as annoying as it is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, one, of, uh, one of our sort of famous mentors in the poly field, um, Kamala Devi, talks about that when she speaks. She says, people say, don't you just have to process all the time? And, and she says, no, we get to share and communicate. It's not a have to it's a get to <laughs> because yeah, well you know, I think people should talks, do it <laughs> yeah she talks about when her father was on his deathbed and he regretted that he didn't take more time for his relationships so people don't usually lay on their deathbed and wish they had worked more wish they had spent more time alone <laughs> so I think non-monogamy well, gives us a chance to have those deeper conversations and discover more about ourselves as well as our beloved I've definitely noticed that. So like if you talk to anybody in the monogamy community, most people will say that they're the closest to the people they're making love to, like their partner. They won't call them a primary partner. They might call them a husband or a wife or a long-term committed partner if they're anti-marriage because people still are to some degree at different times. You know, everybody, everybody has their own definition for what it's supposed to be. Right. But so anyhow, mm-hmm. um, what I found is like, if like, if if love and sex are the deepest ways that you can connect, then in open relationships, people get the opportunity to deeply connect with many people, not just one person, mm. not just to rely to that one person for all of your needs, but basically you're able to make these deep and lasting connections with multiple people so that when one person is just not there and they kind of need to focus on themselves, it's not like you're entirely cut off from 
from love and connection because you have this other partner here too. And that's the reality. I, I don't think we cover that enough, but like there are times when we as individuals are down and out and we just aren't capable of meeting our partner's needs and we need more people helping us. And what I value about that community is that like they really take care of each other and they understand that. And instead of there being all this weight and pressure on one person to meet all of your needs and they're like broken at that time, because we go through times in life where we're broken, like somebody passes away or you lose a, a child or, you know, like there's things that happen that break us. But in poly mm-hmm. communities, when you're broken, you have multiple people there to take care of you because you have multiple long-term relationships. And so while you're down, you're not all alone. But then when you come back, then when somebody else is down, they're not alone. And it's just, it's been very beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were talking about um, the fear of something ending and how everything is, everything has an ending in this life. <laughs> so yeah. I'm wondering you'd like to share about any endings in your relationships and how you've managed that. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm personally going through a divorce and ending of a relationship and that's hard. It is a mutual decision and I don't want to go into all the details because everybody knows who's been married, that there's always a big pile of reasons for why people end a relationship. But as a marriage therapist, it is kind of hard to be uh, facing my own divorce. Uh, because it is, you know, like my whole life I've spent, um, you know, we were married 11 years and I spent my whole life trying to work at the relationship, thinking about the different approaches. Like I teach people how to help their relationships. And so it's hard to realize that even though, you know, I've done all that work I could, he's done all the work that he could. The reality is we both are at a place where we're over this and, and we want to move on. And the crazy thing is when we, when we both like said it to each other, it was like a weight lifted. Like we were relieved mm-hmm. because there does come a time in a relationship where it ends. And I'm not saying everybody has, is going to end up in divorce, but to some degree you're going to lose everyone either through divorce or death. So everything mm-hmm. will end. It just mm-hmm. may not end in the divorce sort of way. And so mm-hmm. one of the things I've heard from other therapists is it, it may be valuable to see a relationship as having a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and finding a way to value all of those spaces. And to be honest, even with divorce, I'm still going to be in a long-term relationship with him, and that's why we've decided to be friends and and do what's Mm -hmm. best for our daughter, because we have a three-year-old, and she is super beautiful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that, yeah. Um, And so speaking of divorce, I wanted to ask you about this, concept of how sometimes people they call it dating but they're really sort of polyamorous like after a divorce or in between mm-hmm. relationships oftentimes people are dating multiple people and they're sort of poly or oftentimes mm-hmm. our culture calls it sowing our wild oats and um, I just want to explore that topic with you um, somebody who's recently divorced might not want to look for that one person again. So is there something called temporary poly or poly after divorce? Um, Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can absolutely. It's from personal and from client experience. So, you know, personally facing my own single, singledom, whatever you want to call it. 
um, I'm, I'm thinking about that, those questions. Like I absolutely have that sense of like, I want to sow my wild oats. I've been in a monogamous relationship for a very long time and I'm ready to see what's out there. I am a sex therapist. So I'm very, like, I'm very aware of my sexual needs. I don't feel like I haven't come into myself because I've, you know, my whole life is teaching people to do that. But there are some things I've missed out on being in a monogamous relationship. And that is multiple partners, maybe exploring with um, people of different sexes, like, um, different genders, you know, like I'm, I'm, I don't know where I am and what I want and what I like or don't like, because I've kind of been in one situation for a very long time. And so I find myself knowing like right off the bat, I don't want anything serious yet because I know that emotionally I'm not ready to really commit to anyone. But at the mm -hmm. same time, I'm not sure is this that sowing your wild oats time that everybody does or most people do. Or is it like the start to, well, maybe I am a consensual non-monogamous person. Who knows, right? And the funny mm -hmm. thing is when I watch my clients, if my clients don't take a little time to sow their wild oats, whether they end up being poly or not, they end up resentful if they, mm -hmm. if they go right into another monogamous relationship. And I'll end up working with them because they, like, they're mad that they didn't take the time because you know, I think sometimes when people divorce, they're very lonely. And so they want to fill up that space because like thinking about it in my own relationship, I mean, a lot of needs were met in my relationship. Like the first thing I thought of was cuddling. Like I cuddle every night before bed with my partner and now I don't have somebody to cuddle with. And, and that's like a need that's missing. And so like what can happen and there's just little things like that, that you used to do in marriage that you're like, Oh my God, that's changing. Oh, we kissed before bed. Oh, I used to, like today, I used to call him on my lunch break, but like we're trying to distance a little to kind of, you know, get our space. Right. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I, I, should I call somebody else? I guess I can call somebody else. And they're just mm -hmm. little things. That's it. Just little shifts that happen that you're like faced with. And I think when people go through a divorce, it's very scary to them to notice all the things that they're missing. And one benefit I personally could see to Polly is, well, you're making multiple long-term relationships. So one partner could be your cuddle partner. One partner could mm -hmm. be the one that you call and talk to when you just need a friend. One partner could be the one that you just have really hot sex with. <laughs> one partner mm -hmm. can be the one who um, does a little more, like depending on, you know, like some people are more generous than others. So you can have your partner that's really generous in bed so you don't have to do much. <laughs> sometimes I don't want to do it all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I don't know. Like, personally, I don't know where I'm going. And a lot of my clients are in the same boat. When Now that I'm meeting the other divorcees in the world, they're all saying the exact same thing to me. They're like, I'm not ready mm -hmm. for anything serious. I just got out of a long-term monogamous relationship, many of them sexless marriages. And they're like, we have a lot of making up to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what I tell right. all my clients and even what I'm reminding myself of is just take this as a, a phase in life and just enjoy yourself, enjoy your freedom, explore what's out there. I've decided as a personal goal that this is my year of adventures. I am going mm -hmm. to try new things. Um, I'm going to get out of my comfort zone because I'm sick of Netflix and chilling. I'm sick of it. This <laughs> <laughs> is a very common married habit. And you know what, like this last weekend, I went to a wrestling match and I got to sing the national anthem because I do know a lot of people ah. in the city and one of my friends asked if I wanted to do it. And like, I don't, I don't think I ever would have done that if I were married because now I have also like one of those, you know, split custody agreements. So I have days where I can just be free to do my adult Angela thing. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I think for everyone who's in that place, it's really important to give yourself time to heal, um, to accept that your needs are going to shift a million times because that's definitely what's happening for me. Um, but to also not be in a rush to jump into that other relationship because I've seen it again and again, every time it happens, the, the people are very unhappy about it because mm-hmm. you, you rush at a time when you're not fully healed and, and you end up mm-hmm. sometimes in relationships that aren't always the best for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because people are just afraid to be alone and, and they haven't really yep. faced themselves enough to enjoy their own company. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want people to feel alone. Like one of the greatest things that's helped me is just seeking out all my supports. Uh, oh my goodness. The best, the, the big, wonderful things that I'm grateful for is all the supports I have. You never realize how many supports you have until, you know, some big life crisis like this happens. And it is a life crisis because your whole life is changing. Let's be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I think everybody needs to understand monogamous or non-monogamous that like the, the value in poly is that there are a lot of networks and you do keep expanding and growing and getting to know people and no, you don't have sex with every person you get to know, but there's this understanding that I need more than one person to meet my needs. And I need the monogamous community to understand that too. Like you can't rely on one person because we all go through stuff and, and we all need lots of community and connection. And the more community and connection you have, the happier you are as a person. And so while I still struggle through the change and crisis here and there, the reality is I've had so many people I could contact and so many people who were like, let me take you out for a drink or for a dinner. And so many people supporting me and random people who say I divorced a while back and it was the best decision of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're funny. And it's just, it's interesting too, because people are really supportive and understanding because everybody's seen divorce. It's so common now. Nobody's freaked out anymore mm-hmm. about it. So that's been helpful to right. me too. Mm-hmm. Good. Excellent. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So when you talk about, um, you know, that, that when you're monogamous for a long time, you don't get to have that variety. So do you think that couples should consider opening their relationships when their sex life starts to get boring? If they can, they can do it. It's hard because I've seen it. So, like, there's a, there's some research out there that says that that first year of opening up is the hardest year. But after that first year, the rates of divorce are the same, like, for whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, okay? Mm-hmm. But, so, but that year is a tough year. So, like, yes, people can do it, but they both need to have it be on the same page. They both need to have an idea of this is what I'm getting out of it for myself. Um, but this goes back to that old sex thing I was talking about earlier for how you get women to kind of come into their sexual selves. Like, I think everybody needs to have this ability to look at a situation like that and say, what could I get out of this for me alone? Um, not just to do it for my partner, because anytime you kind of feel coerced into something, even if it's in a small way, there's ways that you can develop a resentment towards it. If you are, are approaching it with, you know, like maybe I could get something out of this. Maybe I am tired of having sex with the same person. Not, not that they're not trying, but that it is, it's somebody said to me, they're like, it's like bacon, you know, like bacon's delicious. But if I had to eat bacon every day for like 20 years, I might get tired of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and no, sex isn't the same as bacon. I've, I have a deep, respect for sex and love because I spend all day helping people 
sort through their sex and love lives. So like, I don't mean mm-hmm. it's just bacon, but I understand the concept that like, maybe it is nice to see, like, maybe I want a sausage. <laughs> maybe I want a pancake. Maybe I want a taco. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be good to have a variety of options just to see what works for you. And what I remember from even when I was single before getting married, I did sew my wild oats then, but just as a single person, that's how I found out what I liked sexually and what I didn't like, mm-hmm. how I developed a comfort in myself and was uh, better able to ask for my needs. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just think it's valuable for that alone. You have to start to speak to your needs, but I would encourage people to either read some books about it or get some guidance because there are a lot of hurts that can be avoided you just had a coach like me <laughs> just giving you mm-hmm. some ideas because they don't even know what boundaries right. to set. You say, okay, you're supposed to set boundaries. And they're like, well, what's a boundary? You know, like, oh, don't have sex in our marriage bed. Okay. I mean, that might be a boundary that works, but like, what about, um, what are we going to do when you fall in love with this person? Or what do we do if mm-hmm. you actually get super jealous because uh, you're, I'm kissing another person and you have a meltdown. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, I just think, if people are going to do it, they just need a little guidance because it is a very um, first year is a very rocky road that can cause a lot of harm if not treated Mm -hmm. delicately. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. And when you were talking about asking for what you want, I know a lot of, um, I hate to choose a pick out a gender, but I I do see it more in women where um, because of that programming around serving their husband, doing their wifely duty, they, uh, never really thought about what they want, so they don't even know what the options are. It's almost like you want to give them a drop-down menu to, you know, help them I make choices. Have to. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't even occur I to them. I wonder how so oh, to do that because people don't even know it exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they haven't even been able to ask for it, so then they blame their husband for lousy sex, but they've never really told him what they want because they don't know what they want. <laughs> Well, and to that point, there's a lot of people that when they explore swinging, consensual non-monogamy, they start to learn from their partners. So you don't know everything there is about sex, but when you start having sex with other people, you start to develop tricks. And many of the couples I've worked with have said, yeah, we got better in our sex life as a result because I learned how to go down on her in a different way, or I learned new, um, new fun sex tips or different, like, I didn't know you liked that position, but somebody Mm -hmm. here tried Mm -hmm. this with you. And I saw it and I was like, Oh, I want to try that. Do you like that? How I didn't know. (laughs) So like you actually learn from the variety, how to improve your own sex life too, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, if couples just go slowly and learn Mm -hmm. that we're always going to go back home together. Uh, I may have a really hot time with somebody, but I'm still choosing you. And if if they keep choosing each other over and over again, they can start to relax into that lifestyle and not be as afraid because actually the reverse is true. In monogamy, if you get really turned on by someone or you fall in love, your only choice is to leave. But with non-monogamy, you can actually just add more Um, And it's actually, uh, on paper, it would seem like a more secure relationship style. (laughs) Yeah, because you don't have to break up with someone just because you like somebody. And guess what? Mm -hmm. Everybody likes somebody other than their partner. You know, so Mm -hmm. this is a weird concept that I noticed. But, like, people, when they're married, are still kind of paying attention to the people they may date when they divorce. They totally are. Mm -hmm. And I know this mm-hmm. because as soon as my status changed on Facebook, <laughs> people started to what? reach out. 
and my status changed on Facebook. <laughs> oh, People yes. start to reach out. And so one thing that's just interesting is that I think that people do think about the end, even in their marriages, even in their happy marriages, because they think, okay, so what does this mean for me? And what if, what if we ever did divorce or what if my partner died? And so they do, they'll pay attention to the people in their community that they may want to be with. And I, I really mm-hmm. do. I think people are doing that all the time, um, whether they're always conscious of it or not. And so, but the difference then is with non-monogamy, you don't have to like, oh, I like this person. Oh man, I have to break up with them. No, like you can like somebody and still stay with your partner and try something with this new other person and it not be a threat. But in monogamy, it is a threat, even though everybody does it. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. Everybody yeah. finds other people attractive. Everybody thinks about who they'd be with if they weren't with their partner. Everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's one more question I wanted to ask you. Um, I want to talk about the pros and cons of being out as a non-monogamous person versus keeping it confidential. What are your thoughts about that? Pros and cons. There are a lot of pros and cons. So (laughs) being out, being out, the pros are that you can be very, very open with any lover or any people when, when you're like out in public at a bar or at a, grocery store some people like I've learned in the swinger community they use a pineapple upside down so like even in the grocery <laughs> store if somebody sees it they're like oh okay there's a fellow swinger it's like all right pineapples good to know um but like there's just this openness and you you don't have to worry about what people think and what you end up doing is you you be your authentic self and you draw people in who are cool with that and you repel people who aren't cool with that given a safe community where the con is, is if you're not in a safe community. And the reality is not everybody's comfortable with the idea of non-monogamy and bad things can happen. They may not happen directly to you, but they can happen to your kids. I've talked to polyamorous uh, couples in the community. And um, when some of them go public, then sometimes it affects their kids' school. Like one of them had had um, their, they'd asked, requested the, the child of a polyamorous couple that was out to be removed from the school. And, you know, they'll come up with different excuses for it. But the reality is sometimes being out can impact your kids for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and di- there's other things, too. It can impact your work. And so, like, it's okay to be open if you feel like you have a sense of a safe community that it wouldn't impact. But if, you're, if it would impact community and you could lose your job or your child could get beat up because they think you're the, you have weird parents, then it could be a real con. Now, on the flip side of saying private, there's pros and cons as well. Um, The pros are, well, you get to keep your job, and most of them really do keep it from their kids. Like, they try to do their best, although kids are smart. So, like, as they get older, they start to get an idea. But there's still this understanding that, you know, my sex life is personal, regardless of who it's with, right? Um, but anyhow, like there, there's the pros are you don't have to worry as much about that community impact, but the cons are you don't get to be out about your love for somebody. And so, for example, say you are in love with somebody who's uh, in a different relationship and you're in public, but your public, your public figure face is you're married or you have this one partner. So when you're out in public where you might want to show and express love or be just a little more free with your partner, you really can't because if somebody saw you, they would think you were having an affair or it would be a bad thing. And so I'm not necessarily judging it either way. I understand why people go both ways, uh, especially public figures. I can understand why they might be a little more underground. 
And I would just say it really depends on your safety and um, the, the support you have around yourself and your ability to make money without it affecting your income, you know, like, because a job, losing a job over poly is not cool for anyone, I don't think, <laughs> unless mm-hmm. you really hated the job and you needed to start. <laughs> uh, right, you need an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, well, those are some good reasons. And, and I, I, I work, I specialize in working with mature people who usually have grown kids and are pretty established in their careers. So I often advocate for non-monogamy for mature people because um, Mm -hmm. they may no longer have a good sexual connection and um, but they have this whole life together a home maybe a business a whole community grown kids maybe grandkids and uh, there's a way that they could stay together and still get their sexual needs met um, and not have to worry so much about the things with school and little kids and stuff um, so it really yeah. depends on what phase of, of life you're in. Yeah, there's a lot to unravel when you end a relationship. And if you can find a way to stay together and still share the love that you have, because a lot of those people still have great friendships and connections. And, you mm-hmm. know, they can be together. They're already being, living as friends. Um, and so it's totally a possibility to do that so long as both people can kind of take a mature look at it and work mm-hmm. together as a team to really deeply respect each other's feelings. But I, I, it's not for everyone. While I, I would advocate for it for some, I know that there are plenty of people in this world that, that it is just not the life for them, and I want them to be true to their heart too because it, it's, it's not mainstream, and most people have no idea what that looks like or what it means, and it, it's kind of scary for some people, and I think that's okay too. <laughs> Yeah, we're not judging people who choose to be monogamous. In fact, I, I admire people who can be happy in a monogamous relationship. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a really hard I really job. I admire them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just, you know, if I see an article about polyamory on, like, um, Google or some mainstream website, just the comments are so vitriolic. Um, and most most mm. of the comments are, you know, mar- like if you're married, then it's like synonymous with monogamy. It's as if they're the same words and people just can't wrap their brain around that you could be married and actually have multiple partners. It's such a stretch for most people's brains in our society. <laughs> yeah, but maybe we need to stretch a little, do some yoga and get comfortable with new ideas. <laughs> Brain yoga, <laughs> yeah. so close-minded. <laughs> No, I'm joking, but I'm like, you know, I feel like we need to open our minds up a little bit. There's a whole world out there. And, you know, I mean, that's one thing that I'm super excited about this year is I really want to see what the world is like just in a different frame of mind, being single again. And, you know, because I I really do, like, marriage can sometimes be stifling to people. I've even played around with the term, like, marriage is, the phrase marriage is prison at times because it can feel that way. You can kind of feel like, you know, a little trapped. And I don't think we mean to do that, but monogamy can feel mm-hmm. that way, especially if you find a bunch of people around you attractive, but you feel like, well, that's just not the road or the path that I can take. This is my life. And then if you couple like having lots of problems that most people do, not that I'm saying every marriage is like riddled in issues, because well, they are, some are, some aren't, but there's a lot of work to deal with in marriage. And, and one of the values also of consensual non-monogamy is you can just kind of sometimes have the romantic part and not have to deal with the work of chores or finances. And um, Mm -hmm. that can be very valuable in its own way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that you talked about the relief that you felt because you've been working so hard in your marriage and trying to make it work. And when you both said, I don't think this is going to work, there's this load lifted off your shoulders. And I've had that experience before where it's not so much grief as it is relief from just, ah, oh, finally, I, I don't have to keep trying so hard. <laughs> so it can actually yeah. be a good thing. Yeah, yeah it well, is. I wish you the best of luck with your transition. Thing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I wish, yeah, I wish you the best with your transition, and I really appreciate you being so transparent with us and sharing that with us. And I, you're just a delightful person. I'm really happy to have had you on the show. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. I, I was very um, happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. So before we run out of time, I'd like you to give our listeners um, an opportunity to reach out to you, um, tell people how they can find you, and I believe you also have a, a gift for them. Yes, yes. So um, I have two ways to connect. One is at the About Sex Podcast. It's www.aboutsexpodcast, and that's free sexual health information. Um, to reach out for my free uh, or for my offer, I'm giving a 20% off coupon to anybody who signs up for my email list. Um, for my books, 20% off both books. Um, I'll email it right back to you. And so the website is www.therapistinstlouis.com. And there's a little place where you can submit your email to subscribe. And anybody who does that tonight, I'll send them the coupon. Um, and you can have 20% off both books. Therapistinstlouis.com. I'll put that on the um, podcast information. I didn't put that one website down, so I'll do that. Well, yeah, sure. Okay, great. All right, well, thanks again, Angela, and I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. So next week on Leading as Love Radio, we will have Caroline Carrington, who is a well-known Tantra teacher, and she has been practicing polyamory and ethical non-monogamy for most of her adult life, and she's just a delight. She's just funny and outgoing and it's just a wealth of knowledge around tantra and sexuality she's studied in india um, traveled to india many times she's the real deal um, and she's a prolific teacher leads a lot of classes all over the world and she has a new partnership going on and she'll be talking about that and some of her new classes and her new school that she created so please join us next week at 6 p.m pacific time on leading edge love radio this has been your host sumati sparks at sumatisparks.com Good night.